Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. You know what we do here? We have conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp, really excited to be with you today and to bring you another terrific episode. But guess what, folks? It is happening. If you have been wondering where the Smart People Society is, wait no longer. Most likely, by the time you hear this, it will be in action. What do I mean by that? Well, first, if you are an avid listener, if you care about this show, and seriously, that's all I mean. If you're just like, meh, sometimes, do not sign up. I don't want to hear from you. Uh, it's not that we don't enjoy you, okay? It's great. Listen, but uh, we're really interested in turning this into something bigger, and we've got a lot of things Coming up, we've got a lot of help. We've actually got top guests, titans of their industry saying, guys, we'll help you. Marketing experts, branding experts, you know, technology experts saying, we want to help you. We like what you do. Head on over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society, and you will join a small but growing group of people who are going to build the show through input, discussion, and surveys. And it's not just a one-way thing. The reason I say it's starting is because the email will go out saying, hey, we've got some questions for you, but we're going to give you things in return. Things like free books and t-shirts and stickers and who knows, maybe crazy stuff like Amazon gift cards or just a shout out on the show. Smartpeoplepodcast.com slash society. Enough about that because I really enjoyed this episode. I think we cover areas that we have never covered before. For example, we talk about Gen Z. Generation Z, you know they're coming into the workforce? Yeah, they are. So we are talking to Alexandra Levitt, and we're covering things that are in her new book, Humanity Works, Merging Technologies and People for the Workplace of the Future. Now look, myself personally, I get caught up on this word technology. I kind of just shut down. I'm sick of it. But that is not what we're talking about here. I was fully engaged. I really enjoyed the book. We talk a lot about generations. We talk about what technology is going to be doing, but it's mostly for the future of the workforce. So what does the next 10 years look like? 20 years, 30 years in the work environment. Alexandra Levitt is an internationally recognized thought leader, futurist, and consultant. She's a columnist for the New York Times and Forbes and has been named the top entrepreneur to follow on Twitter by Forbes. 
the top career expert to follow on Twitter by Mashable. And you know what? There's another one. Top business expert to follow on Twitter. I didn't know those were things, but um, better give you her Twitter account, right? Her Twitter is at A Levitt. That's A-L-E-V-I-T. Wow, she's got a lot of followers. You know what's funny about our show? By the way, you can fast forward about 30 seconds if you just care about the interview. But, you know, most podcasts would get somebody like Alexandra on their show and be like, oh, I really need to make sure she tweets everything about us and just blows it up for the next week and we get stats. And John and I are like, she sounds interesting. I I don't care how many followers she has. I, I don't know. Maybe that's why we don't market and brand well. That's why we rely on you. Go tell a friend because... We are only concerned with getting great guests and bringing them to you. That being said, here it is. Episode with Alexandra Levitt as we talk about generations, technology, humanity, and the future of work. Enjoy. Alexandra, first, thank you so much for being on Smart People Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I am thrilled to be here. Absolutely. And, you know, we were just talking and I, I wanted to get the background in this because it's just off the cuff. But you mentioned you went back and spoke at your 20th year high school reunion. And I have two questions about that. One, did you expect to be the one speaking 20 years after high school graduation? And two, what was your message to your high school classmates? Okay. Well, first of all, it's a little bit different what I, what I did. Uh, I did attend my high school reunion, and then I had been invited to speak actually to the student body of my high school. Oh, so, very cool. Okay. Yeah. So, And my message for them was I had written a book. Uh, it was actually the third edition that was out in 2014 called They Don't Teach Corporate in College. And so my message to them was what they needed to do to prepare for their lives in college and their professional careers afterward. And in terms of whether or not I knew that I was going to be doing this, I think if you had asked me in high school, I think I would have told you I was going to be a writer, but I think I would have been focusing more on fiction at that point. I wrote a lot of fiction when I was in junior high and high school, mm. and that was where I thought I was going to go. So I don't think it would necessarily surprise the past me that I had written a book, but I think where I went with it, which is writing business books, might have been a little bit surprising. That was a little bit unexpected, but I had a great time doing it. It felt like my life had come full circle from growing up there and contributing to the community as a student and then coming back and contributing as an alumni who hopefully had some helpful information for the current students. It, it was a it was a great time. Yeah, and I feel like it might be a little vindicating. Like if I get to go speak at my high school after 20 years, I feel like I'll get to just say to everyone, like, see, I told you I was going to make it. I don't <laughs> know, did you feel like that? Now you didn't feel like that? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, some of the Class, some of my classmates attended. And the funniest thing was when the, the teachers who were still there that attended, who had me as a student, yeah. there were like three of them. Yeah. That was weird because it's like, wow, they're still teaching there 20 years later. And it it was fun to talk with them. And they'd be like, yeah, I remember you when you were 17. And now look where you are. So, um, yeah, that was pretty fun. Those poor teachers. No, I'm just kidding. So um, yeah. I, I you mentioned this idea of um, they don't teach corporate in college. And that is so true. I mean, mm -hmm. literally, one of the funniest stories I have is my last semester of college, I took a commercial real estate course. Then I graduate and pretty promptly get a job in commercial real estate, and nothing I learned in the last class I took in college translated. I mean, yeah. that, that is, you can't blame that on, you know, oh, well, it was four years ago because it was the last semester. You can't right. blame it on, ah, oh, the subjects weren't the same because they were literally the same. So I, I plan on getting into this a little later, but I just want to start here with, you know, you talk a lot about where we're going, technologies, the future of the workforce. Mm -hmm. How does education prepare us for that? And where do you think the education model is going? Chris, this is a great question. And the fact is the educational model that we currently have, at least with traditional universities, doesn't prepare us. And the message that I shared back in 2004, when I wrote the book, 
was that we didn't learn the soft skills that we needed. We may have learned hardcore subjects, but we didn't learn the importance of things like making a good first impression, being diplomatic, knowing how to solve problems. Those weren't things that we took coursework on. And so we went into the business world. And even if we'd been high achieving students, like you said, that didn't translate. So now the problem today, it's a little bit different. I, we still have uh, a lot of deficits in soft skills, particularly because today's students do a lot more on technology and don't even have the ability to practice in-person interactions. So we still see that, and it's still necessary for us to do a lot of catch up when these students enter the workforce. But we also see the fact that things are changing so rapidly. As you mentioned, the following year that you try to use these skills, they were already outdated. And so education needs to become a lot more nimble, a lot more flexible, and it needs to become a lot more short term. And I think we're starting to see some of this with the rise of micro credentials and certifications where, hey, if you need to become an expert in data analytics, you don't have to take a four year degree program. You can take an online course and, you know, mass and open a MOOC, a massive open online course, or you can go and do a certification. And this is, I think, how traditional universities are, are going to need to adapt to make sure that they're meeting the needs of the market. Another thing that I see happening a lot, which is super smart, we have geographic labor shortages and mismatches where companies will need people that they can't get because those people might be located elsewhere. And so what I see these companies very smartly doing is partnering with local universities or any university and developing curriculum where they can pipeline those individuals who complete the curriculum directly into that workplace. And a specific example of that is DeVry University and the FBI. So the FBI a few years back had a problem with a cybersecurity expert shortage. They wanted to hire a lot more cybersecurity people, couldn't find any. And so what they did not want to do is outsource this to like India or China, where there were qualified cybersecurity people, but we didn't really want them handling right. US cybersecurity. So they partnered with DeVry's College of Information Sciences to develop a specific curriculum where you would learn exactly what you needed to learn to go and work in the FBI right after graduation. And so it was this partnership that essentially funneled people directly into that job. And so I think we're gonna see more corporate university partnerships where you are trained to work at a very specific company, not just in a specific field, but at a company. You know what strikes me as odd about that though, and I never thought about this, but by the FBI doing that, and I'm, I'm assuming these students are paying to be at DeVry, they're essentially having students pay for the training that companies used to pay people to go through, right? It <laughs> used to be you come in and we train you to do your job while you get paid. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, there's some of that. And I also think it's though the basic skill set that you need. I mean, as a cybersecurity expert, you need to know how to do some coding. You need to know how to recognize threats. You need to know how to use certain software. Uh, so I think there is a presumption when you come out of university and you have a degree that you have a certain core skill set. Mm. But I think it's a hybrid model. I think that you're right that some of some of it is probably customized to the FBI where you would not normally see that yeah. in a traditional degree program. I think it's both. No, and, and that makes sense because when you do that, you're ensuring at least that what you're learning is current. Like I said, what I was learning was so far from current. It's It, it still blows my mind. But, you know, it's really pertinent that we're having this conversation. So um, everyone knows my producer and, and co-founder of this show, John, and um, he's always been interested in tech. I mean, he's he's going to love this interview. He's just a tech nerd. But um, he's been kind of dabbling in coding and engineering and things for a while. Um, and he's considering a career switch. And he calls me the, the other day and we're just talking it through. He's like, you know, he's like, I, I, I might just, you know, stop working, take out a, a, a massive loan um, and go get my degree in this, like go real deep and make sure I come out with all the knowledge and ability to do it. And we went through and I said, dude, given what you're earning now, the cost of that degree, the interest on your loan, you know, the lost amount of money from from what you're earning now, et cetera. Your talk, it's literally like four or five hundred thousand dollars for two years when you when you factor everything in. That's and, and the thing is, he said, and there's no guarantee I walk out being able to do exactly what a company needs. And it was just we both had this moment like that's crazy. And he was like, I'm just going to go take some stuff online. <laughs> yeah. And that's smart. 
But I mean, how is that even a thing these days? I feel like it's highway robbery. You mean the the extensive amounts of money that are being paid for college? Yeah, like people, look, they expect you to either know it when you're 18 and then go to school and that school actually work, or God forbid you have to make a career transition. And when you're, you know, in, when you're our age in our mid thirties, you're at a level where you're making decent money in your job. So that's opportunity cost. It just doesn't, no part of it feels like a good process to get people where they need to end up. Yeah. And I think we're going to see uh, colleges facing serious issues as a result of that yeah. if they don't change their models. And some of them we do see changing their models, but it's not moving very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, good thing though for people who are coming out of college is that employers aren't moving really quickly either. Right. So employers are still looking by and large for people with degrees. Um, this, you know, they, they don't, they're open. They say they're open to certifications and micro credentials, yeah. but at the end of the day, they, if they see somebody who graduated from Northwestern or Harvard or Stanford, they're going to be excited by that because it still has a pedigree and prestige. So I think I do see it changing, but I don't see it changing immediately. But what's very interesting, Chris, is that there was a recent study by Universum that looked at Generation Z. So Generation Z is the group of young people that were born after 1996. So the oldest ones actually went into the workforce this past May. And Universum asked Gen Zers that were in high school at the time, did they feel like a college degree was necessary? And a full 60% said no that wow. depending on what you wanted to do, you might go to college or you might not go to college. And that if you wanted to learn a given skill set, you could probably learn it online. And that the value of college was more interpersonal. It was more for networking and social engagement. Hmm. And they saw that for what it is. And the fact that's the fact that if you want to learn a skill set, you there's nothing stopping you really from going online and learning it. Right. And uh, that's how this generation is approaching education. They, they call it hack schooling, where... Yeah. Whenever you want to know anything, you don't have to wait for a teacher to to tell you. You just go and research it yourself. I know. it's Man, there's so much to talk about there. We've covered this topic a few times, but I I really wanted to talk about it with you. And it's gone down this uh, this slightly other rabbit hole because I, I also want to ask you this. You mentioned the idea of soft skills. We're not being taught those in college. So I'm a millennial, um, one of the older millennials. And and so the, the people I grew up with, the friends I've seen and everything, we really have this, in my opinion, unique uh, upbringing of we we went through a lot of our kind of years of change, you know, young adolescence without technology and yep. then kind of transitioned like right around college and everything. Yep. And uh, I I never and most of my friends and I can't speak forever. I'm, of course, we speak to our own experience, but we had pretty good soft skills. I mean, you know, growing up, you had to call the landline and talk to the parents and you had to show up and you had to do all these things. So when I hear these things about kids today lack soft skills, I wonder, and, and you are a perfect person to ask this, given all your experience, research, et cetera. Is that true or is that just a tagline? Do like do college students of today or high school students legitimately not have great soft skills on average because of technology? Or is that just something old crotchety people like to say? <laughs> well, by the way, I'm in the same demographic. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it's uh, it's been a great place for us to be. We've mm-hmm. served as a bridge between the boomers who haven't been as quick on the uptake for some of this stuff and the, uh, the younger millennials and the Gen Zs who have had it since they were young kids or, or even birth. Right. And uh, I'm sad to say, or I don't know if, what answer you were looking for, but this this is true. Okay. We see a, a deficit of interpersonal skills simply due to lack of practice. Wow. I mean, when I go into an audience of Gen Zers, I will sometimes ask who's broken up with someone via text or, or instant message, and like they'll all raise their hands. When they have a problem to solve or an awkward situation or conflict, Usually they'll do it online in some capacity, but they will very rarely have an in-person conversation. And so they never develop the skills that they need to really handle this in person in the workplace, which is still necessary in a majority of cases. Now, this is not universally true. I, I always... I always hesitate with the, even though I talk about generational differences and research shows that they do exist, I hesitate to say that a, a given trait is true for every individual. And there are kids... Um, whose parents really emphasized it with them. And so they're better at it. But I think you asked on average, and I think on average, they are not as good. 
Yeah, and and I I really wasn't looking for any specific answer because I don't think there's anything wrong with it, right? Every generation has strengths and and weaknesses. And and so, but I do find it funny because millennials got beat up forever about, oh, they don't know how to cut it in the workforce. And now we we essentially are the workforce. Um, And I really truly believe that we won't say the same thing about Gen Z. At least in my opinion, I'm really excited about them. Um, I'm really excited about their, their, you know, finesse with technology. Do you find that to be the same? Do you find millennials more welcoming of the differences of Gen Z than baby boomers and Gen X were of millennials? Well, absolutely, Chris. And the reason is there was a lot more of a paradigm shift yeah. when okay, yeah. millennials came in because Gen, Gen X, which is a tiny generation that's sort of, you know, often forgotten because they are in between the boomers and the millennials, very, very big generations. But the boomers and Gen Xers always did what they were told. And they, they existed in a very hierarchical, traditional corporate setting. And they didn't do what they wanted until they got into a position of authority. And then what happened when the millennials came in is they were like, we're not going to do this. We're going to speak up and develop the workplace that we want. And they were able to do that because they had the numbers. They've yeah. always had the numbers. And so they were very disruptive. And when I talk about disruptive, I don't mean like you know, banging on pans. I mean that they wanted to change the way business was done to make it more efficient, more direct, and more authentic. And so that was a huge shift. Now, I don't think we see as big of a shift going from the millennials to Gen Z, because by and large, they're of the same mentality. And that's it. Let's figure out the easiest, most efficient way to get something done, cut the red tape, and do it. Yeah. And the the difference, I think, is that Millennials, just because of the timing of everything, had a little bit of an extended adolescence. It took them a little while to grow up. And so they just weren't as mature at a young age as Gen Z is. And a lot of that is due to the availability of technology. Again, Gen Zers have been off learning what they feel like they need to learn since they were little kids. And millennials just didn't have that opportunity. Mm. And they also, you know, came of age during 9-11 and the recession and all these problematic things. So... Gen Z has been in a lot better position, generally speaking, and they have a mouthpiece because they can do and be anything they want. If they have a message, they can go online, they can go on YouTube, they can express it, and they are committed to really making a difference in the world at a very young age and can because of their access. Right. And that's the difference. And so they've gotten practice in terms of what they want to offer and what they feel like they have to offer, and they've they've gotten good at it really young. So they come into the workplace and they they do know how to get things done. But again, the problem is similar to what we experience with the millennials and that's the the interpersonal skills. Thankfully, the millennials who are in charge are a lot more tolerant. Exactly, right. Yes. Yes, yes, they are. They are because they were, they remember being that way and they accept that the Gen Z's are going to be disruptive Mm -hmm. and they were disruptive. So they remember that. And I think that the two groups are going to get along really, really well. Yeah. And you know, that was, that was a, um, a refreshing or at least an unexpected take when I opened your book. And that book is Humanity Works, Merging Technologies and People for the Workforce of the Future. And I opened your book and it started with generations. And I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting this. I expected it to be a book about like AI and deep learning and all that, which it includes. But Mm -hmm. I, you know, I mentioned this to you. Everyone probably listening knows it. Really not something I'm that excited about. But the Mm -hmm. way you approach it, starting with that, was unique and necessary. Why did you feel you had to discuss generations when you were writing a book about the future of work with technology? It's a great question. Also, Chris, you're, you're asking the good ones. <laughs> and I would say that the, the overarching message of the book isn't really about technology. It's about what does the future of work look like and what do we need to do to prepare? And the very first question I always ask myself is who's working? Like before we can tell like what they're going to be doing, who's going to be there to start? And that's why the first chapter is on changing demographics, Mm. because we have to keep in mind that the boomers, just as a couple examples, the boomers are still working. They're working in different capacities. They're not in traditional leadership roles in many cases, but they've moved on to share their knowledge in other ways, in a consulting capacity or in a contract work capacity. We see um, the the Xers taking up into leadership positions, but they're not being enough of them to take over for the boomers. So the millennials are entering leadership positions an average of 10 years earlier than prior generations. And of course, we see the rise of Generation Z, who are new entry-level professionals. 
And of course we have these, as I briefly mentioned before, these geographic skills mismatches where you might have a, a huge need for a particular skill in one area, but you can't get it. So the need for global talent sourcing and global talent pools, setting up operations in different places, getting contract workers or outsourcing to different countries. These are all ways that organizations will be able to source the talent they need when they need it. And who's available to work is a, is a huge issue. I mean, certain countries like Russia will face a shortage of tens of millions of working age people by the mid-century because of falling fertility rates. And so if you don't have a workforce and you need people to work at your organizations and they're not there, what else can you do? Right. And so that's a really important problem that I feel like it's kind of important to address. And, and what I try and do with the book is go from like the 30,000 foot view down to like your immediate view if you're looking at a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. It starts with what's happening in the world in general, goes into what's happening in organizations, what's happening for you as a leader of teams, and then what's happening for you as an individual. So it goes all the way from the top to the bottom. Yeah, and I noticed that. And again, that was another thing I really enjoyed about it. And I, I man, I do have so many questions, which usually happens in these interviews. I people think an hour, you should have plenty of time, but it's not. Um, <laughs> so one question uh, again on this education front, just because I try and make things tangible for people trying to learn things. Do you have any recommended resources like MOOCs that you really enjoy or places that people can can go to find specific skills, things that are more recognized in the workplace? Kind of any preferences from the expert? Well, the first thing that you should do is look at your industry specifically and look at the writing on the wall in terms of what's likely to be automated in the near future and where can you continue as a human to add value and what is super hot right now in your field that wasn't a couple of years ago. So an example of that type of skill is data analytics or predictive analytics, being able to take a, a data from disparate sources and derive meaningful business insights from it and decide what path you should take based on that information. So previously, if you knew data analytics, you usually went into like computer science or IT. Now, even if you're in marketing, you need to know data analytics. So go to a, I would recommend, you know, there's Udemy, there's Coursera. There are several really prestigious outlets of courses where you can literally look and take any length of course in any subject that you want. If you are really looking for something that's vetted and is going to be quality, I recommend affiliating yourself with a university. I mean, Stanford has dozens of MOOCs available with sometimes as many as five or 6,000 people around the world taking them. So this is a great way to gain a new skill from the comfort of your desk doing it on your own time. So I want to I want to also lead a little bit with this question. You know, maybe it's because I'm a millennial. Maybe it's because I've I'm familiar with technology. It doesn't scare me, but I feel like people have been beating this drum or, or, you know, crying wolf for 20 plus years now, ever since we heard that terrible modem sound in the late nineties of AOL yeah. of, Oh, so much disruption. And personally, I don't feel like it happened yet. Now, yes. Do we have smartphones and do we use emails and we have chat and all this stuff? Yeah. I mean, fine. Right. But I, I just always feel like people are like, I know, but in 10 years, your job is not going to exist. And 10 years after that, AI is running the planet. Do you really think, I mean, is it this exponential upward curve that what I've experienced in the last 20 years is going to be even is, is minuscule to what, you know, Gen Z will experience in the next 20 years? Yeah, no, that's that's true. And there is a lot of hand wringing, Chris, right now around automation and the fact that we're all going to be automated away. And some of that is perpetuated by the media. Yeah. And I would just give people a reality check about that. McKinsey just came out with some research that showed that only about five percent of occupations will be totally automated based on technology that's currently available or emerging. We are much more likely to see approximately 30 percent of about 60 percent of occupations. So 30% of the tasks in 60% of the occupations will be automated. So what that essentially means is that mostly 
if you are in a professional job today, you will see some tasks in your job become automated, which goes back to our point before of looking for the pl places where things were going to be automated. And if that's a main part of your job, you're going to have to do some rethinking about skills you want to develop so that you are not having a substantial amount of time on your hands in the next five to 10 years. The other reason I want to point out that human jobs are not going to disappear is because of some work I've done recently with a Fortune 500 pharmaceutical company that is introducing a bot. So a bot is just a simple piece of software that uh, performs a given task. It might be based on an algorithm. And their bot in particular is an avatar that introduces new hires to the company. So it's an onboarding avatar. They have no fewer than 20 people working on this bot. Mm. So they these are human beings who were doing other things before, and now they're working on a bot. So wherever there is a piece of technology that is integrated into a process where it wasn't before, you need human beings to design it, to build it, to manage it, to fix it when it breaks, and to figure out how to redeploy it. That's a lot of jobs created. So I think we're going to see more of that happening and that we don't really need to worry about AI taking over the world. And this isn't a concern that I have to say I dismiss out of hand, but I don't think that's the immediate worry right now. In fact, if you'd like, I'd share, I'll share with you what I think the, is the immediate worry. You know, it's, but it's funny. I actually have written down, and, and I don't write down many questions because I'm just curious enough to go with it, but... What is the scariest part of the future of work? I, I, I wanted to kind of start with that fear mongering a little bit. So, yeah, what is the immediate threat? The immediate threat, I believe, is that this is not, Chris, our parents' workforce. Like back in our parents' day, Thank you would God. get a degree <laughs> and you would then use that skill set that you learned in university to do a job for at least a couple of decades, if not for the rest of your life. And now... You can literally do anything you want at any time, and no one will govern this process for you. You'll be completely responsible for securing work, for gaining the skills necessary to do that work, and knowing you have to be agile and switch your focus. And just like there are people who aren't cut out for the corporate world, I think there's going to be a lot of people who aren't cut out to work for themselves. They're either unwilling or unable, and they're going to have to. They're going to have no choice. And so it's the it's the burnout, it's the failure, it's the frustration of these individuals that keeps me up at night. Not yeah. the fact that they won't have a job. They'll have one. They just may hate it. And yeah. those are the people that I worry about. You know, I love your empathy. I've always considered myself an empathetic person. But, like, I also always believe, you know, and, and recognize this, that my truth is the truth. And so, like, to me, the worst part of work is the current corporate structure is the top down nine to seven, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so when you talk and people talk about, you know, we can call it the gig economy, but entrepreneurship, being flexible, all this. I'm like, thank God, come bring it. Right. So when you talk about people who don't want that, I just go, all right, well, you should fail anyways. I don't really mean that. I don't really mean that. But I'm just I'm really looking forward to and enjoying that process. For example, podcasting, right? The democratization of information and connection is really fun and unique. And I just, I find it so much better than, Hey, we'll guarantee you. We actually we won't even guarantee you a paycheck. We'll say there's a decent chance you'll continue to get a paycheck if you work. And by the way, I, I teach seminars at companies for a living. So two, three a week at various companies around the country. And I've never been to a place in four years. So hundreds and hundreds of companies where the people say, you know what? We're not that busy. We're not that overworked. We've got a good balance. That to mm -hmm. me is worse or scarier then, hey, it's going to be on you to earn a living. Yeah, no, I, I think there are going to be people who like that being told what to do. They like that yeah. structure. They like knowing what's expected of them. And you see this because of the number of small business and consultants that fail and end up going back into the business world because they just, they either, and it, some, in some cases, it's not that they can't do right. it. It's that they don't want to do it. Like it's too much work. Yeah. And it is going to be more work in the future to earn a living. It just is. Okay. You're going to have to be reskilling all the time. You're going to have to be uh, selling yourself all the time to different employers. And I think for you and I find that exciting, Chris. We're doing that already. You and I are really well positioned. A lot of your listeners are well positioned. They are. Yeah. Yeah. Other people aren't. <laughs> right. No. And that makes sense. That It's funny. I was just actually talking to a good friend of mine the other day and I, I said, you know, I... 
I think that entrepreneurs are are what are needed and you can call it whatever, you know, how we're discussing it. Um, and so that's a skill that I enjoy. So it, it, it will lend itself to success or at least um, enjoyment while doing it. But I can see how it is. It's it's a risky thing. I've always been more you know, risk tolerant, but it's not about me. Here's, here's I want to, I want to kind of highlight what you were saying there about how, you know, we're going to have to do this. We're going to have to sell ourselves and it's going to be harder to earn a living. Let me tell you my problem with technology. Let me tell you my problem with the future. Everything is getting harder while it should be getting easier. Everyone in the fifties and early 1900s and stuff, you know, imagined that life would continue to get easier. And personally, I truly believe from a professional standpoint, it's getting harder. That seems backwards. What happened to the old assumption that as technology increases, our workload will decrease? And Chris, that's something that has been supported by research. We have seen that productivity has declined in the last 15 years. And, and you're right, it doesn't seem to make sense. It seems to be a paradox. But I think part of this is the way humans are wired is that there's always more work to be done. There's right. never there's never a time where it's like, well, gee, I just got this automated, so now I don't have to do anything else. It's like, okay, your boss is now saying, all right, well, on to the next thing. And so the reason that things are getting harder is because we are just, we're working more, because we're able to work more. Right. Think about how things were for our parents. Like they went to work in the morning, they commuted, and then they came home at night, and they had no way to go back to work. Exactly. They were forced to have four hours of family time before bed. Mm -hmm. Now you can be on 24 seven and people are. There is no boundary between work and life. And that is why things are getting more difficult because things are actually completely out of hand in some situations. I mean, France, I don't know if you heard about this. France actually had to legislate this. They oh, actually yeah. had to yeah. tell people, employers, you can't contact your employees at such and such an hour. Yeah. Like you can't. And if they, we have companies now that are using algorithms to say, if you're sending an email at midnight, it won't go through. Yep, I've heard that. You have to wait. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see some of the backlash that's happening as a result of this because companies recognize people can only work so much and then the quality of the work starts to go down and people start to make mistakes. And that's one thing that organizations do not want. Well, let's get philosophical here because this is my, this is the crux of all of it, right? I, I believe that, you know, we we want to I, I agree that we are compelled to work and accomplish and achieve that. What's that's what puts us at the top of the food chain. That's what our prefrontal cortex wants us to do. I mean, all that. I, I truly believe that. But I also believe that most humans just want a certain emotion, right? They want to feel, you know, safe. They want to feel happy. They want to feel loved. All these things. My belief, though, is that the things we're creating, which is what everybody says they're working harder to do, are not adding and potentially are detracting from the thing we ultimately want. Now, I'm not saying I'm right. That's why I want to discuss it with you. But I just feel like and I say this to people. OK, great. We all have a smartphone now. You can't live without it, right? No, can't. Is your life better than it was in 2005 or 2000? Mm -hmm. And I, I really don't believe the answer to that is yes. So why work so hard to build things that really don't add to the core of what we want? Now, the flip side is, and I know this is a little bit of a rant and a ramble, take it where you'd like, but okay, people working in healthcare and, you know, things like that, or anything that directly relates to maybe our health or our, our capacity to, to live fine. But Hey, you built a faster internet. I don't know. Don't really care. I don't know. You tell me. Yeah. I, and depending on who you ask, the march forward of technology is good or it's bad. I was uh, talking to some people last night, actually, about this and the fact of the Internet of Things, which is where everything is connected and kind of proceeds forward without direct human intermediation. So we're talking about the smart home and the smart office where. Uh, we see just a whole bunch of things that just kind of happen without you having to turn on a light switch or make your own coffee or wake your kids up in the morning or look at what the weather is or turn on the news. We see that the Internet of Things is actually taking a lot of basic ways yeah. that we go about our day out of the picture. 
picture. Mm -hmm. And there are people who think that's cool. And there are people who think that's unnecessary. Like, you know, let's go back to a simpler time where we didn't need Alexa to tell us what the weather is. We just walked outside. (laughs) So I think that that's going to become a personal preference. I think that most people will use it, but some people will use the option to just turn it off. Because yeah. they'll just it, it'll just be too much noise. Yeah. And I think with respect to the workforce, you know, my partner Harmony, um, which does uh, productivity and workplace apps, they um, did an interesting study where they looked at app fatigue, where there are just so many apps you can have open in the workplace to be going through that you're actually spending more time looking through your apps then you're spending doing work. And so they really wanna help people determine what's the best path to get your work done? What's the most seamless way without having to worry necessarily about using 8 million different technologies? How do you do that? Wow, I, I, I actually, I should just get off my soapbox on that because I just don't, I don't know. I feel like we are spinning our wheels and creating for the sake of creation and oftentimes not with a goal. Like I was just reading something about uh, it was about Facebook and it was talking about, maybe it was your book, actually. I don't know. All the things I read get, get all jumbled, but talking about one of the things they're using their AI for and their, their, you know, smart thinking and all this. And it was like tagging people, you know, now look, I realize that Facebook is trying to do bigger things with o- Oculus Rift and all this stuff. And that's great. I think they're, I, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not anti-Facebook, but my point is like, you're taking some of, in my opinion, probably the smartest people in the world and you're working on a better way to tag people in pictures. Give me a break. Like I just drives me nuts. I don't know. Well, then again, when Facebook got involved in other stuff, people didn't like it. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, or it became really sticky. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a lot of really smart people at Google in particular who are working on some cool stuff. Chris, I don't know if you use Gmail. I love Gmail. Um, Love it. But but, but, but I don't necessarily like email. So fine. You know, (laughs) but but Gmail is a great example of deep learning that's become consumerized. I mean, in the last two weeks, Gmail has rolled out this new thing where all of a sudden your email knows how you're going to finish a sentence, I know, whether creepy. you want to say something else, whether you want to make an attachment, even though you haven't made an attachment, mm-hmm. if it picks out, if the, you say to someone that you are going to meet them at a certain time, it asks you, all right, you want to add this to your calendar. Like this is an example of, of things that are, are really kind of productivity saving that are, are making their way into our everyday lives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get into this, you know, the, at the core of your book, this humanity works thing. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, what I, I don't even I want to touch on for a couple minutes at the end what we can do as an individual. But give us yeah. a, that 10,000 kind of foot view of the the 10 to 20 year uh, horizon of technology in the workforce. Well, I'll do my best. You know, we futurists don't make predictions per se. Sure. We do forecasting. So the way that I see things generally moving is that there will be um, three primary areas that are going to shift. And I call these the three C's, and they are collaboration, customization, and creativity. So the way that we work with one another is going to change. We will be working remotely. We will be working virtually. We will be members of human-machine hybrid teams where machines will take over various tasks for us. And we will have to develop shorter-term relationships because our teams generally will be quicker and more quickly disbanded um, in succession. So the, the days of working for one individual or with one team are, are pretty much over. You'll have to just learn to develop rapport a lot more quickly. The second is customization. We touched briefly on this already. You can have any career you want. Many organizations will allow people to gain a wide bench of cross-functional expertise by making lateral moves. And of course, you will be able to acquire a skill set that is unique to you and not necessarily to anyone else. And you'll be able to proceed and make adjustments as necessary. And then finally, there's probably the most important, and that's creativity. You know, gainful human employment in the future will depend on those uniquely human contributions that only we can make, that, that can't be automated. And these tend to relate to things like discovery, teaming, diplomacy empathy. And we really need to, as I said, look at the writing on the wall and say, okay, what parts of my job can be automated? 
and what parts of my job really require a human being to to take over or to to participate in. We call this human in the loop, where a human has to tell the machine and give it guidance about whether what it's doing is effective and whether or not it resonates. And so these are really the key points. You have to be looking for ways to insert yourself into technology-given processes and expect that you will need a great deal of agility to survive and thrive in the workplace of the future. You know, one of the things, and maybe it's just because it's the topic of your book, this idea of technologies, the more we talk about it, the more I get saddened by, and again, it's because I don't really enjoy technology, by the fact that I feel like everyone is going to be turning into this essentially this um, higher level computer, like our jobs. It's like, okay, instead of learning how to read, you're going to have to learn how to code instead of, instead of learning how to do math, you're going to learn, you're going to have to learn how to, you know, understand big data. Like I, I just feel like, what about the people who feel that the reason they're here is that personal connection or things like that is is it truly going to the point where, and I think about my, my two kids, I've got a six month old and three year old, you know, they have to be into technology or else they will literally be hungry and, and, and poor. Yeah, Chris, they're going to have to do both. They're going to have to understand technology and they're going to have to have really good soft skills. And, you know, as we've alluded to already, not all humans are created equal when it comes to soft skills. Just because you're a human doesn't necessarily mean you have good interpersonal sensitivity. But humans buy from humans. Humans hire other humans. We're going to see just because something can be mass produced, either a product or a service, doesn't necessarily mean that it will be. And I love to use the example of the nursing field in Japan in particular. They had a labor shortage in nursing, so they decided to try and automate it. And they had a giant bear, six feet tall, white bear called Robear. And they expected that Robear would eliminate the need for a lot of nurses. Instead, what happened is Robear was really only able to move patients in and out of bed and serve food. The human nurses were needed because nurses do things like sit down with a family member to explain a difficult diagnosis. They look in a patient's eyes to assess the level of pain. They walk into a room and draw on their years of experience and the nuances of the environment to determine when they should call in particular specialists. Those are very complex tasks that are impossible to automate and they require that human touch. There are a lot of jobs like that. Even basic production where, you know, just because you have a scarf that can be produced by a robot, wouldn't you rather pay a little bit more for a scarf on Etsy that was made by a person? This is why human beings are going to continue to be important. Yeah. We are, it's just humans want other humans to be involved in things. I'm, I'm <laughs> so. really glad. I'm glad you said that because that's a feeling I've had for quite some time. And I just think sometimes it gets drowned out in the, I don't want to call it clickbait, but the, the fascination with technology, which is, is great. You know, it's, it's just that I think it sometimes takes center stage. I want to ask you um, maybe one, one and a half more questions in the next couple minutes we have. Have you at all thought deeper into the future? So I know your book is kind of focused a little bit more on that maybe 10 to 15 year horizon. Correct me if I'm wrong. But for selfish reasons, when I'm looking 25 years in the future for my kids sake, you know, 30 years in the future, have you even ventured a guess there at how it will even be different than the next 10 years? Well, I think by that point, Chris, we will have likely approached what is known as the technological singularity, yeah. where oh things God. are so different that we can't even imagine what our lives will be like. I think what we can say for sure is there's going to be some climate change issues and there's going to be some big environmental problems. Yeah. So that, of course, is going to affect the work world and who's available to work and what they're doing. So I think food production is going to become a very important factor, safe water, safe conditions to live in. And I think we're going to see that our values become a lot simpler um, in that time. And I have kids, too, and I wish we were leaving them a better world, but we are not. Yeah. Um, we probably had the best. We and the boomers yep. probably lived in the best time in this country. Yep. I, I don't think it's necessarily getting better. It would be great for technology to facilitate solutions to some of these things, but we have to be willing to accept the solutions and implement them. And <laughs> that seems to be stalled from a political perspective. Wow. So, really uh, well said, by the way. 
Thank you. No, I, I just mean, well, I mean, cause, cause I've had that same thought, you know, I, I do believe I'm actually an optimist. Um, and I believe that we do have problems, but they are solvable. Uh, almost every problem, uh, maybe I'm putting too much faith in humanity. Uh, and, and if that means going to Mars or whatever, I think we will, I think we're highly adaptable. And I think very quickly our current situation becomes our, you know, our best situation. I really do believe that. Um, and I think through technology, we can do it. But to your point, it's yeah. Okay. But are we going to allow it to, or are we going to fall back to the weaknesses of being human and emotion and partisanship and, you know, uh, tribal thinking and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I hope you're right. And I, and I think the solutions are there and that's where human creativity I mentioned it was as one of the three C's. That's where it's going to come into play. We really need creative people to come up with solutions to fix some of these problems. And hopefully it'll be our kids. My son wants to be he's he wants to be an engineer and he wants to be on the first um, Mars colony. I told him, I was like, you know, if you go there, you won't be able to come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, that's Um, fine. But, you know, like I want him to be building this new world. And so that's we just have to teach our kids good values and hope that they'll go forth and fix some of the problems that we see today. Well, like I said, I got faith in the in the Z's and who's behind them. I really do. So if you're listening out there, you know, go study up and figure out how to solve the world's problems that we all created. So on that note, the book is Humanity Works, Merging Technologies and People for the Workforce of the Future. If you've enjoyed this conversation, and we were talking prior to me hitting record, but I've had a chance to go through a lot of this book. It is what we talked about, but but much more at a deeper and, and just as, if not more interesting level, the generations, the technology. So I highly recommend it. Alexandra, is there anywhere else you would like to guide our listeners who are fascinated by the future of work? Sure. Well, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me today. If you would like to purchase some books for your organization or have me come speak or consult, you can get a lot of free bonuses in this initial launch period. So visit us at humanityworksbook.com. I'm on all the social networks as Alexandra Levitt. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback on the book. It will likely be a new edition in the next couple of years because this you know, this content, you need to make sure you update it. So I would love to hear from everyone and uh, you know, feel free to check out the book on Amazon or anywhere else books are sold. And we will absolutely link to it. Well, again, Alexandra, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Chris. Have a wonderful day. All right. Another episode in the books. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Alexandra Levitt. Her book, Humanity Works, Merging Technologies and People for the Workforce of the Future, comes out on October 28th. So, of course, you can find it at your local bookstores or on Amazon. And if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please go through the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email Chris and I at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com, or you can always message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. All right, keeping it short and sweet this week, make sure you stay tuned to All Things Smart People Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever podcatcher you listen to. Head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and we will see you all next episode.